So even though the weather drove us inside, we are so grateful to be able to gather together with you online as we continue our series through the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 8, and starting with verse 1, here's what we find there. It says, On that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of good news. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So, so the book of Acts really is about the history of the earliest followers of Jesus. And as this story unfolds, we start to see a crystal clear picture of what authentic Christianity is and what it really means to follow Jesus. And if you follow the book of Acts to its end, what you'll see is that it actually follows a pattern that Jesus' vision for, for his church laid out. That pattern was simply this, that his followers would take the life-changing message that he left them and they'd take it to place. Places like Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And now, up until this point, things really haven't moved beyond the city of Jerusalem. But then at the end of chapter 7, things break bad in the city. Jesus' followers are on the run. The heat's dialed all the way up. Persecution breaks out, and the church is scattered. And what we're going to see is that Jesus' followers aren't just on the run. They're on mission just as Jesus had intended them to be. And now this story that we see in Acts chapter 8, really what it is, is it's a turning point. It's the start of a movement to invite every person, every ethnicity, every tribe, every nation to a life changing relationship with Jesus. And as it unfolds, what we start to see is the type of church that the early church was. And we also start to see the dynamics of this movement as we read through uh, Acts chapter 8. And there are four dynamics to this movement that I believe make it unlike anything that the world had ever seen up until this point, and also made it possible for this movement to transform the lives of people everywhere it went. And so the story recorded in Acts chapter 8, really what, what I'd love for you to see is that it's organic. I'd love for you to see that it's strategic, that it's embodied, and that ultimately it's a gospel movement centered entirely on the person and work of Jesus. So first, the movement is organic. Now, at the, at the beginning of, of Acts chapter 8, we see this organic movement start to unfold when things break bad in Jerusalem. Verse 1 simply says this. It says, on that day. Now, this is, this is the day that Stephen, one of the leaders of the church, uh, he was dragged to the outskirts of the city, and he was murdered. But on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now, when you think of the apostles, you could think of them as the senior leaders of the early church. And, and they, they ended up staying in Jerusalem. But meanwhile, everyone else was scattered. And, and, and because they had been so impacted by this life-changing message of Jesus, they didn't just scatter. What we read is they, that they were preaching the message of the good news everywhere 
they went. What this didn't mean is that they were out there hustling uh, public speaking gigs or preaching in churches. Um, what, what The movement that was unfolding was far more organic than that as they took this life-changing message of Jesus to a new region. They talked about it, they lived it, and they invited others to experience it experience it. And this, this is a huge transition for the church because this, what, what the scattering ultimately was is, is it, it was a catalyst that moved followers of Jesus from being consumers of ministry to becoming contributors to ministry, from being people who were literally just showing up to hear the message of Jesus to becoming people that were innovating and finding creative ways to spread that message to people everywhere. There were no senior leaders at this point for them to lean on or a church building for them to gather in or a government for them to look to. They weren't following top-down orders at this point in time. When the persecution broke out in Jerusalem, life changed in an instant. Nothing was the same in and frankly, being scattered is, is, a, is a lot like facing a new normal. And, and when we face a new normal, what we tend to do is look around and panic and, and start remembering all the things that we've lost. But I believe that there's something powerful that can happen when we start looking up to Jesus and realizing that Jesus is absolutely everything that we need. And, and, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, you really don't know that Jesus is all you need until you're facing circumstances that show you that Jesus is all you have. And by being scattered, the first century church, the early church, is faking, facing circumstances that are just like that. And being scattered can be painful, but I believe that it's through the scattering that Jesus can lead his followers to deeper levels of purpose. Listen to what one commentator had to say about the scattering during the first century. He said that when the Christians were all together under the powerful and gifted leadership of the apostles, they'd been fairly passive. They had simply brought their friends to hear the great preaching at the church in Jerusalem. But when they were scattered away from their leaders, they gathered up the courage to communicate themselves what they had learned. And the result was that though they were less eloquent than the apostles, in the end, they were more effective. But, but the question is, why were they more effective? And, and, and I think there's a real simple answer to that. Uh, and then there's a more complex answer to that. The more simplistic answer to that is they were more effective because, frankly, there were thousands more followers of Jesus than there were apostles. But there's another dynamic to this organic uh, story of life change that's being carried from town to town and city to city by these, by these followers of Jesus. And I think it's this, that, that there's something to be said, there's something far more powerful in an authentic story of life change, something maybe more impactful and more effective than a well-polished, well-put-together uh, message. And this movement that Jesus launched, what we're beginning to see is that the follow, his, his closest followers, these first followers, what they're embracing is they're embracing the mission themselves, and they've stopped believing that it's up to someone else to take the good news of Jesus to the world. You see, the, the movement that Jesus launched isn't just the responsibility of, of the apostles or pastors or senior leaders or leaders in the church. It's the responsibility of every single 
follower of Jesus. And for the first time, every single follower of Jesus is embracing his vision for the church. And it's coming to fruition in this place called Samaria. And the people there are responding to this life-changing message of Jesus. Lives are being transformed and word makes its way back to Jerusalem. And in verse, verse 14, here's what we read. We read that when the apostles who were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. And now to understand why the apostles went, I think it's important for us to understand who the apostles were. Now, we've got to remember that the apostles were people who had been personally trained by Jesus. They had literally walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. They were trained by Jesus. And because of that, they had a specific role to play as this movement played out. And so they didn't show up in Samaria to micromanage or bring a, a level of bureaucracy or control to what was happening. They showed up to validate that what was unfolding in Samaria was centered on Jesus. And one commentator put it, put it like this, as far as the role of the apostles is com- concerned. He says that the apostles became the stabilizing, verifying, and unifying element in a, mis- in a mission that moves to new areas and groups without their planning or control. So for the first time, this movement of, that Jesus started is moving beyond Jerusalem as every single follower of Jesus began to take the life-transforming message of Jesus and spread it everywhere that they went. And it's unfolding in an organic way. So first, the early church movement was, or, was an organic movement. But secondly, the movement is strategic. And now I know there are some notions uh, about what the church is meant to be, and some people believe that it's either meant to be organic or it's meant to be strategic, but for some reason they don't believe that it's meant to be both. And you have people that believe that it's supposed to be organic, they'll throw rocks at, at those that believe that it's supposed to be more strategic, and vice versa. And churches who focus all their time and their energy on strategy are, are, are accused oft times of being too corporate, while churches with an organic bent are accused. Of, of like this unwillingness to adapt new methods that allow them to reach, to reach people. But this, this passage, I believe it challenges both of those paradigms and it presents something markedly different. And the pattern I see throughout the entire book of Acts is that the movement seems to always start in an organic fashion. And, and that's even the story of this church. It started very organically as a group of followers of Jesus in Severn, Maryland, started meeting in the basement of a house and then started meeting in, a, in an elementary school and so on and so forth. So it always starts organically, but it continues very strategically. And the architect behind the whole thing is Jesus. And the power that fuels it is the Holy Spirit. And it's never really intended to reach a final destination. It's a movement that Jesus wants to keep moving until it reaches the ends of the earth. And in order for that to happen, it's got to be organic enough to adapt to any culture, but it's got to be strategic enough to know where there's, there's cultures are, to know where there's where people are, to to know where to go and how to get there. It's got to be strategic enough to actually reach the ends of the earth. And in verse 5, we see that this movement is not just organic, it's also strategic. Here's what verse 5 says. It says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And as the rest of the book of Acts unfolds, what we're going to see is that in order to reach people, cities 
become the strategy. Cities become the focus. You fast forward to Acts chapter 16. Paul gets a vision from God to take the gospel to the region of Macedonia. And his first move is to the largest city there, a place called Philippi. And I think it's worth pointing out that when Paul got there, because this early church movement started very organically as believers were scattered and they took the message of Jesus with them everywhere that they went, before Paul ever gets there, there are believers already there when Paul arrives. This is the case in Samaria, it's the case in Antioch, and it's the case in literally every city that the early church reaches during the first century. And now cities, here's why they were so strategic. They were so strategic because they functioned as as hubs that literally connected other regions culturally and geographically. Ideas and trends tended to start in cities and then move out to other areas. And so the powerful cultural influence that cities had on entire regions is really what made cities a strategy for the early church movement. And even more so than that, they were multi-ethnic and they were populated by people from all over the world. And so when the message of Jesus started to take root and transform lives in cities and, and, and then those people traveled back to their places of origin, what ended up happening is they took the gospel with them. They took the life-changing message of Jesus with them and it didn't stop there. By the mid-300s A.D., there were Christians in virtually every city in the Greco-Roman world. And these cities were all global. They were multi-ethnic. And people could move between them freely. And when they did, they took the life-changing message of Jesus with them. And so the strategy of the early church, it focused on cities. And, and, and this, this is what allowed the message of Jesus to spread beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and start making its way towards the end of the earth. And this is actually what Jesus envisioned. And it's not for the sake of him expanding his turf. It's for the sake of transforming lives. And so now we've seen how the early church movement was organic. We've seen how it was strategic. But next I want to show you that the movement is embodied. So turn with me to verse 5. It says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said. As they heard and saw the signs he was performing, for, one, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And now there are four things in this, this little stretch of scripture that I believe how the, the early church movement was embodied. And, and when something's embodied, it's, it means it's tangible. It means it's concrete. It means you can see it and you can feel it. And the early church movement, based on this passage, was embodied in four ways. It was embodied in word, it was embodied in deed, it was embodied in community, and it was embodied in racial reconciliation. So first, the movement is embodied in word. In verse 5, we read that Philip went down to a city and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And then if you, if you pivot down to verse 12, what we have recorded there is when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women 
were baptized. So, so as, far, as far as I understand, the gospel is primarily a message about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. We see this throughout the entire New Testament. And Paul tells us in Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Jesus. And so it's pretty obvious that the movement is embodied in word. And in fact, if you remove the message of Jesus and you remove the gospel, really you don't have a Christian movement. But but I want to show you that the, the, the movement of the early church is not just embodied in word. It's not just embodied in what they say. In verse 7, we see that the movement is also embodied indeed. It's embodied in what they do. And here's what verse 7 says. It says, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Now, now, when we read a verse like this, it's real easy to get distracted because of how supernatural this sounds. But don't allow that to distract you because the reason why this verse is there is to show us what the early church was doing to make a tangible difference to improve the quality of life in places like Samaria for people both physically and spiritually. And I, and I think it's really important that we make these two distinctions, that we see these two aspects of how the early church was showing up in the lives of people. Because they didn't just reduce all of our problems to, to just being physical, and they didn't reduce them to just spiritual, because the gospel, frankly, doesn't do that. The gospel very clearly shows us that things aren't as they should be, and I think that you and I have enough life's experience to validate that. But, but also, the, here's what the gospel shows us. It shows us that some of our problems are physical, and it shows us that some of them are spiritual, and it also shows us that all of them can be resolved through Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, what we see here is that we should be the first ones to show up in the lives of the people around us and be the most committed to solving problems that are both physical and spiritual in the lives of people in our communities, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And so here's what we learn about the early church. They didn't just show up and speak a message. They showed up and they made a tangible difference. Their words were backed up by their deeds and the way that they serve people in their communities. And here's the outcome. Here's what happened as a result of that. And it's in verse 6. It says, The crowds paid attention with, with one mind to what Philip said. And as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. Now this passage, I believe that it shows us what can happen when people see followers of Jesus sacrificing and pouring themselves out all for the sake of others. And when they see people being powerfully transformed both spiritually and psychologically, when people see these two things happening in their city, it compels them to lean in and to listen to what Christians have to say. And so if we're not out there pouring ourselves out and making a difference in our community, why would anyone want to listen to what we have to say? Because here's, here's what I think. I think the gospel isn't just a message that we're called to communicate. It's a message that should transform the way that we treat people. And according to this passage, our lives as followers of Jesus should be marked by an ongoing commitment to both the physical and the spiritual well-being of the people in our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, and our workplaces. Now, the, the early church movement was embodied in word. It was embodied in deed. But also it was embodied in community. Let's take a peek at verse 12. Here's what it says there. It says, But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women 
were baptized. And I believe that what we see in this passage is that, that nobody in the early church just believes. Nobody just started following Jesus in their private life and then stopped there. All through the book of Acts, what we see is people placing their trust in Jesus and then going public with their faith through baptism. And that's that frankly that's what baptism is. Baptism's not a private thing, it's a public thing. It's not individual, it's communal. Baptism literally is a public proclamation that your identity is in Jesus and that your commitment is to other followers of Jesus. And so what Jesus intended to be present in this community as we commit ourselves to other followers of Jesus is a unity that's powerful enough to transform the people in it and the people around it. And so the movement of the early church was embodied in word, it was embodied in deed, and it was embodied in community. But lastly, what we see in this passage is that it was embodied in racial reconciliation. And so to, to understand that, we've got to understand a little bit about the backstory in Samaria. And, and, and the backstory there was that the people living in Samaria were looked down upon by Jewish people. And in fact, Jews and Samaritans had this mutual hatred of one another. And there are a number of stories in the New Testament that we can't even begin to understand unless we first understand the racism that divided these two groups of people. And in fact, some Jew Jewish people weren't just taught that they were better than others. They were taught that getting too close to people from other races and other religions would actually ruin their lives. But Jewish people during this time had this unique and very special hatred for Samaritans that wouldn't even allow them to step foot in Samaria because the racism ran so deep. And so when the gospel starts spreading from Jerusalem to Samaria, what we begin to see is Jesus' heart for racial reconciliation. And so for a Jewish man, not only to go to Samaria, but to risk his reputation, to serve the Samaritans, to sacrifice for them, to love them, to accept them, and to value them, was evidence that his life had been absolutely transformed. But it's also evidence that Jesus came to reconcile people, to break down barriers that separate people, even racial barriers. And see, Jesus has the power to unite people like no one else can. And when the message of Jesus is fleshed out in deed, and when it's lived out in community the way that it was in Samaria, and when people there started to witness reconciliation and healing despite a long history of hatred, rejection, and racism, when they saw people loving each other despite cultural differences and, and, and long-standing tensions and conflict, something amazing unfolds and happens in that city. And it's the same thing that I believe can happen in our communities when we begin to embody the message of Jesus by serving people and cultivating communities community and working towards racial reconciliation. It's right here in verse 8. And here's what verse 8 says. It says that there was great joy in that city. Look, the, the embodied movement of the early church, the message of Jesus that they spoke, and the way that they loved people, the way that they lived in community, and the way that they repented of their racism and worked towards ra racial reconciliation, literally transformed an entire city. And this is what Jesus envisioned for the whole world, that as his followers embodied his life-changing message in Jerusalem and Judea, 
and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth that lives would be transformed and that joy would erupt. You see, the joy that that erupted in Samaria wasn't something that was exclusive to followers of Jesus. It was something that was felt across the entire city. And what was unfolding there is the same thing that I believe can unfold in our communities. If the lives of people in our church are being transformed, it should be happening in a way that the people in our communities experience. The difference we make should be so tangible that the people in our communities sit back and they say things like, I might not believe what they believe, but I sure am glad that they're here. I'm glad that they're my neighbors. I'm glad that their kids are in our schools. I'm encouraged by the way that they love people and accept people and include people. And I can't imagine this community without them. So if you want to know how we can be a gathering of believers like that, according to this passage, that happens as we become a movement that's embodied in word, in deed, in community, and in racial reconciliation. This is what we see in Philip, who went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Jesus. And as a result of what he said, as a result of what he did, and how he lived in community with others, the entire city was transformed and filled with joy. But the question, the question I have is this, how did Philip become a person like that? And the answer to that, to that question is the last component of the early church movement. The early church movement was organic, it was strategic, it was embodied, but lastly, the movement is centered on the gospel. Take a look at verse 12. It says, Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Now look, the term good news literally means gospel. And so that begs the question, what is the gospel? And in order for us to understand what the gospel is clearly, we're going to take a look at someone in this passage that's having a real hard time understanding what the gospel is. He's struggling to understand it the same way that sometimes you and I struggle. And his name is Simon. And uh, we hear about him in verse 9, and we're told that he practiced sorcery in the city where Philip was, and that his, his influence had grown and had reached and stretched across the entire city of Samaria. But something changes when Philip shows up, and people's lives start being transformed by the message of Jesus. And Simon starts seeing these things unfold, and whereas he had gotten the attention of everyone, now Philip and these early followers of Jesus have the attention of Simon. And what he's coming to grips with, what he's realizing is that nothing he's built his life on is capable of giving him the life that he's really after. Take a look at verse 14. Here's what it says. It says, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Look, Simon was so compelled by what he saw that that here's what he says. He says, here's some money. I want to buy what you have. See, Simon, Simon was after life change, a life change that only Jesus can bring, but he had no idea 
how to get it. And Peter's going to tell him. He's gonna, Peter's going to level with him. And what Peter says is going to give us a very crystal clear picture of what the gospel is. But hang in there because it's going to sound, off the break, it's going to sound like a rebuke. But really it's a message of redemption. And here's what Peter says. He says, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. Look, the gospel is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't work your way to it. And the free gift that Peter was pointing to is Jesus and what he has done fully and completely to make it possible for people to be forgiven, transformed, and set free. And the reason why people were experiencing joy in the city is because Jesus was in the city. And Jesus is literally the good news that had come to Samaria and he was completely transforming people there. And Simon, Simon was bearing witness to the transforming power of Jesus and everything in him wanted to experience it in his own life. And so he does what every other religion and what every other worldview suggests and he tries to earn it. He believes that wholeness and a new life is something that he has to earn, but the gospel isn't like that at all. The gospel starts with Jesus, it continues with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus because Jesus is the good news that brings joy to the city. You see, the gospel, it really is not about you. It's about what Jesus has done for you as your substitute by taking all of your sin and all of your guilt and all of your shame upon himself and enduring the cross for you. And once you get this, once you see how much God loves you, once you see how much Jesus gave to rescue you, then and only then will you realize that the gift Jesus offers is free to you because it costs him everything. Look, every other worldview and religion out there always piles the burdens on. But Jesus is the only one that tells us that we can rest because the burden has been fully lifted. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the message that Peter came to proclaim to the people in Samaria is the same thing that Jesus gave his life to secure. And that's freedom. That the burden can be absolutely and utterly lifted from your life. And if you want what Jesus offers, all you have to do is realize that the gift of God available through Jesus is free. You can't purchase it. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't achieve it. All you can do is receive it. And when you do, you will experience the same joy that erupted in Samaria. Because here's the thing. The, the gospel is what transformed that early church. And it was the gospel that allowed them to be scattered in a way that allowed others to be gathered to Jesus so that their lives could be transformed. Look, the city of Samaria, and frankly, there's no city or no community out there can have joy until Jesus' followers are scattered. And Jesus couldn't save us unless he was literally scattered. And Jesus was literally scattered so that we could be gathered back to God. And we can't bring joy to our communities unless we allow ourselves to be scattered to some degree. And that might be emotionally, that might be a scattering that, 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 that scatters our, our priorities or scatters our resources or scatters our focus. 
But there can't be joy in our communities until the followers of Jesus are scattered to some degree. And the only way, the only way that we can bring joy to our communities is if we allow ourselves to be scattered after having been transformed by the the life-changing message of Jesus, the gospel, in a way that allows us to become a movement that's organic, a movement that's strategic, a movement that's embodied, and ultimately a movement that brings hope to the world because it's centered on the gospel. Let me pray for us. Jesus, Jesus, we realize that you are all that we need. Jesus, that you are everything that we need. But we, we easily, we so easily lose sight of that. And Jesus, I'm asking you, help us to become a people that never loses sight of the fact that you are all that we need. That your gospel is all that we need to be transformed. And Jesus, allow us to be transformed by it in a way that won't allow life's circumstances, the way that we're scattered in this life to get the best of us, but allow it, allow your gospel to transform us in such a way that allows us to be people who are scattered so that others can be gathered to a relationship with you. Jesus, allow us, allow our church to become an, a, a movement, a movement that's organic, a movement that's strategic, a movement that's embodied and ultimately a movement that's centered on your gospel. Jesus, we love you so much and we are so thankful for the way that you first loved us and the way that that's transformed our lives. In your holy name, amen.